we woke up in the morning um, and his village was just the most picturesque place I can ever imagine. This little garden outside and these windows, I could see it as soon as I opened my eyes, you know, lift my head from the pillow, I could see um, just these beautiful mountains, slightly dusted in snow, just out, just beyond his little um, garden, his little fruit trees. And um, we had some breakfast and he said, well, let's go, let's go walking there. And he was this old Peshmerga guy, this old military guy, very peaceful, very zen, um, had the most incredible, prodigious mustache. <laughs> and um, and he just took us out and we spent the day just walking around in those mountains on these beautiful old trails that were all, you know, just really hundreds of years of human activity on them. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. I'm John Horsfall, and on this weekly podcast, I talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders, and many more. But what is left for the adventurers and explorers in the 21st century? Well, let's find out. But before we start, if you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review if you've enjoyed the show so far. A massive thank you to those who reviewed it. That is Mr. Sir from Canada, SB Jewelry and S Pemrose, who recently commented and reviewed the podcast. So thank you. Right, on with the show. My next guest is an award-winning writer, broadcaster and explorer from Northern Ireland. He has travelled over 50,000 kilometres by human-powered means and is currently based out in Iraq. On the podcast today, we talk about some of his expeditions and about what he's doing in northern Iraq to bring tourism to the country. So I am delighted to introduce Liam McCarran to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's absolutely great to finally get you on. You're currently out in Iraq at the moment. And what I absolutely love about your story is just over the years, how you've been talking about these countries, which we've sort of spoken about before, about sort of how they're unrepresented in the sort of Western media and show a completely different side, as well as the sort of kindness of strangers. Um, we'll get into some of your trips uh, in a moment, but before I start, I always like to sort of get to know the sort of person. So for the audience, why don't you tell them sort of a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are now? Sure. Okay. Uh, well, it was uh, kind of an organic journey, I suppose, to where I am now. I'm from Northern Ireland originally. I grew up there. I was very fortunate to have quite a a wild rural childhood. I grew up on a farm close to the ocean. Um, and so I always loved the outdoors, but I didn't travel much. I, I, you know, going to Belfast was a big deal. Um, and when it came to the point of going to university, um, I, I was desperate to, you know, escape and go somewhere far, far away. And the furthest place that I could think of was Kent. Um, so I went uh, to the south of England, and um, while I was there, I, I sort of realised that the the world was much bigger than what I'd seen. You know, even though I'd now crossed the water and been to England, um, so I, I 
I was uh, studying English and film and um, I knew I wanted to do something creative. I knew I wanted to tell stories. I knew I was interested in in people. But um, I, I felt like I, I didn't really know enough about the world um, or myself to to do any justice to try and tell a story. I didn't have any stories to tell. So I, I wanted to figure out some way to, to educate myself um, outside of academia um, and the idea I came up with was to um, buy a bicycle and ride it as as far as I could uh, across places that interested me. Um, so I saved up for a year, uh, bought a bike, um, flew to New York City, and then started cycling um, west. And I rode across North America, and then I rode from Canada to Mexico. And over the course of a year and a half, almost two years, that journey took me you know, New Zealand, Australia, Southeast Asia, and eventually I, I ran out of money and my glorified gap year was over. Um, and so I, I came back home, but it, it, it completely changed my life because it's, um, it gave me a lot more confidence in myself and who I was. I, I, I understood that I could be a lot more capable than I'd felt. I wasn't really a cyclist. I was quite naive and, um, nervous, anxious about the world before that journey. Um, it taught me that most people that I would meet are good and kind and willing to help out a stranger. And it also gave me a, a sense of purpose. I realized that by traveling slowly, in that case on a bicycle, I, I went to places that other people often didn't. Um, and so I, I was engaged in conversations and meetings and experiences that maybe not a lot of other people had. And, and so I could write about those or I could make films about those. And, um, and my career kind of developed from there. And that was 2010. So the last 12 years I've been, uh, I've spent about seven or eight of those years going on expeditions, um, cycling, walking, kayaking, almost always human powered. I've traveled about 30, 35,000 miles by human power. Um, and I write books and, um, uh, make films, do some TV, some radio, lots of different ways to share the stories that I find. And now I live in the Kurdistan region in northern Iraq. Okay. I I think it's so fascinating because your first, as you say, big trip was cycling across America, uh, which was mine too. Was your sort of idea behind that? Because like, I don't know if it was similar to you, but I had never ridden very much in my life. It was just about buying the bike and using it as a form of transport to get off the road into the sort of back country, into the sort of Midwest. Was it sort of similar with you? Were you a big cyclist before you did that trip? No, not at all. I was very similar to you. The, the bicycle was a, a tool to help me explore. Um, it was the, I, I, I think initially I'd had this idea that, um, I'd watched this uh, TV show with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman um, of uh, Long Way Round where they went around the world in motorbikes. And um, I saw that and I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, it would be it would be cool to be like Ewan McGregor and have a motorbike and, you know, go around making jokes and getting filmed. And, um, and then I realized that I wasn't a uh, sort of handsome Hollywood star. I wasn't wildly wealthy and I couldn't ride a motorbike. So I, that's kind of how I came to a budget version on a bicycle. Um, and you know, in the end it, it worked out much better because the, the pace suited me much more as I'm sure you find too. It's a, it's the most beautiful speed at which to travel. I walk a lot these days, which I also like cause it's even slower, but there's something 
effortlessly enjoyable about cycling um unless you're going into a headwind but yeah i i did it because it helped me carry what i needed it sort of limited i couldn't carry too much but i could carry enough and you know as i'm sure you find as well when you're cycling once you're packed for three or four days you you could also go for three or four years you don't really need that much extra stuff i love that you know minimalism of it yeah, I think I think that's very true. I think when when I did it, I didn't know much about the world similar to you. And my idea was to get out and just sort of experience. And I didn't really have any expectation. And with that, I sort of was off the road, the main sort of roads that you go on, you know, the main cycle path. And I ended up in the most extraordinary places. But that's sort of where my love of backcountry and where I sort of experienced sort of the kindness of strangers just in the most extraordinary way, which I had never really come across before. Was that similar with you? Yeah, it was. Um, and I think for me, you know, the US and North America was purposefully chosen because it was um, – it was foreign, but it was also familiar. So there was a shared language um, and some shared culture. Although I think, to be honest, I was I moved to New York City first and lived there for six months before I started the trip. And actually, it was more foreign than I might have expected. Um, you know, there's quite quite a lot of cultural differences. Uh, and, and even when I set off um, on my bike trip, I I remember you know, I remember kind of not trusting anyone for a couple of weeks. And um, it was only after, it was about 10 or 12 days into this trip, um, <clears throat> I'd, I'd sort of avoided having any real in-depth conversations. You know, up until that point, I'd just cycle and I'd put up my tent and I'd, you know, leave early from the forest or whatever. And then I remember some guy driving along beside me for a while and encouraging me to pull into a gas station, which I did. And he, um, I was kind of worried he was going to yell at me for, riding my bike on the hard shoulder or whatever but he took me inside and he bought me a coffee and you know i told him about this trip and at the end of it he reached into his wallet and pulled out twenty dollars and you know kind of pressed it into my palm and and told me to go off and have the adventure of a lifetime and he said you know he had a story about how he was he was in his 60s and he always wanted to go and travel more but he got tied up in a job and everything else and he loved seeing someone young out doing it and i remember just thinking you know what a what uh, um, an incredible thing for a stranger to do, and it um, it totally made it made my day, and and actually made my you know sort of week and month, and uh, and it encouraged me to trust people a lot more. And I'm sure you find this too. You know the the negative experiences I've had in over a decade of this sort of thing. I can kind of think of one hand really, um, you know, which is also related to the fact that I'm male and you know white and where I come from and everything else it's, it's easier for someone like me to travel but yeah I mean I can I can count just a couple of negative experiences and I've got tens of thousands of positive ones stored away positive ones stored away in, in the recesses of my mind yeah it's, it's so true and I didn't really understand it at the start and then as you say they at a petrol station they sort of pull you over and ask what you're doing and I remember they gave me a 20 quid, 20 dollars and said, have a steak on in Nebraska on us. And I was like, and, you know, it just happened all the way through. And so with America, was that sort of the, and Canada and Mexico, 
that sort of was the grounding to the sort of last decade of these expeditions and the sort of travel that you've done. Yeah, it was. I didn't have any aspirations to to travel or have adventures beyond that, or at least I didn't. Um, I hadn't articulated them. It was only as I as I made that journey. Um, you know, the, the ironic thing about that journey was that I was I was on the road for over a year and a half. Um, over a year and a half, less than two years. I can't remember exactly how long. And by the end of it, you know, the thing that brought it to an end was just that I I, my, I ran out of money and I had to go home. Um, but I was actually kind of ready to be done. I, I, I learned that I didn't really want to travel forever. You know, when I set off, I had this vision that, you know, I could just be this cool nomadic guy on a bicycle and I just go forever and ever. And there's people um, like that that you read about, especially if you're in the cycle touring world. There's one German guy. Heinz Duke or something like that. I remember his name coming up. He's been cycle touring for 44 years or whatever. And he's a hero. Um, <clears throat> and that's cool. But that wasn't, that really wasn't me. I, I was sort of ready to be home by the end of it. Um, and when I got home, I figured that I loved being away. I loved being somewhere new and trying to understand that and then trying to, you know, synth- synthesize those experiences so that I could share them as a, uh, in my writing or whatever else. But I also really wanted a home and I wanted a community and I wanted to have some sort of roots to put down. Um, so the, the bike tour, you know, taught me both of those things that I, I I wanted to try and find a balance between those two worlds. And it took a few years, honestly, because it's not not easy to go off on long expeditions and come back and have any sort of um, continuity. But um, I knew after the bike trip that that was the aspiration. Yeah, I, th- I think um I know that you did this um, desert quarter with Alistair Humphreys and he always, he had a great thing that he put on. This was years ago, I think on his social media that sort of, he had an email from a guy who said, you know, I looked at you and I always wanted to go on these long expeditions and, you know, travel the world. And then, so he gave up everything, you know, said to his family, he's going on this big trip. And then after about two weeks of cycling, up the Himalayas, he was like, what am I doing? I hate this. This is, this is terrible. And actually he then went back, went home and said, actually, I'm pretty content with just having the weekends to have the week rather than these big expeditions that I see. Yeah, I think it's uh, everyone. I mean, we're all very fortunate to be able to make these choices. Right. And, um, I think adventure is a really wonderful thing. It's, um, it's life changing. It's life enhancing. It's restorative. It's all of these things. But um, and we should, you know, if we're able to, it, it. I feel it is very beneficial for each of us individually to be more adventurous in our lives. But that doesn't mean. For, in fact, I think it's only really the minority for whom um, it suits, or there's any desire to go off for months, or years on end, and you know, have these long ranging. Uh, adventures across continents i think for most people it makes much more sense to be adventurous um closer to home which alistair humphreys has been a, a, a really wonderful um you know uh, ambassador for that sort of idea yeah and so when you came back from that big trip as you say you started to put down your roots that was in the uk yeah at the time and then probably yeah Sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it was it was at the UK um, the first time, I'm, but I never I never really figured out where. Um, you know, I I, I sort of I, um, I think you're in London now. I love London. It's the city I know best in the world. 
Um, it's great. Uh, but I never quite, I'm, I don't think I'm really a city person. I grew up in the countryside and I, I like wild, more remote places. Um, so I, I, it took me a while to figure out where I wanted to be, which possibly explains why I now live in, you know, Kurdistan in northern Iraq these days. And as you say, you sort of started to put down your roots there. And then your sort of travels took you all over the world from there in terms of your writing and your expeditions. One of them was China on foot. The other one, as you say, was the Desert Quarter with Alistair Humphreys. When you started these sort of expeditions, how did they sort of come about? Um, when I, well, I mean, organically as well, you know, you'll know this, anyone else who's traveled or who's, you know, put themselves out into the world in an adventurous way will probably know this, um, that things happen, you meet people with similar desires and, uh, interests dovetail and so on. So on the bike trip, as I was coming towards the end of it, I was going through Hong Kong and, um, a couple of years prior to that, I'd been at a book launch in London of a guy called Rob Lilwall, who'd ridden a bicycle from Siberia back to London. And, uh, you know, I went to read his book and seek inspiration from this wonderful master of the um, craft of riding long distances. And uh, I got to know Rob a little bit. And, and he, I think he said, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're coming through Hong Kong at any point in your upcoming trip, give me a shout. So, you know, 60 months later, I, I sent him an email and said, I'm, I'm pretty close. And so Rob, uh, Rob and his partner very kindly hosted me and, um, I stayed with them for a little while. And, you know, we talked about adventures and things we wanted to do. And, uh, Rob had this idea to walk across China, um, and, you know, to, to kind of go even slower and really be immersed in the country and to, to, to walk right through the middle, this kind of cross section of life in China. This was, 2011 that we started it so it was it was kind of the point where um where people were starting to look at china and wonder you know what what is this what's happening in this in this vast country you know away from beijing and shanghai and and uh, you know guangzhou what's happening in the, in the, the sort of hinterland um yeah so we, we we started to plan the trip together and eventually did it over the course of seven months and 3000 miles of walking. And, um, and then when we finished that, we had a TV show, Rob was writing a book. I was kind of getting more into the idea that maybe this could be a career. And, and then Rob introduced me to Al Humphreys, who I'd also known a little bit, but you know, and then Al had this idea for a desert trip and, um, yeah. And so one thing led to another and, you know, eventually I started coming up with my own ideas and, uh, but I, you know, I think Rob and Al, I've got a lot to thank for, for, um, for uh yeah i think we shared a lot of the same um the same motivations but they were definitely much more experienced than i was and um and they're, they're both still very good friends and I, I kind of learned a lot about not just about how to survive in you know the mountains of central china or in the desert with them um but but more about turning this into a career and trying to do something meaningful with the, the output from it all and so, as you say, you sort of moved on to sort of um, film and writing. But I suppose for the audience listening, you've gone from a sort of cycling, walking trips. How do you find the difference sort of compared in terms of your experience? 
in these countries? Um, between cycling and walking. Yeah. Uh, they're very different. I mean, I, I do think I, I walk more than I cycle. Um, and I think cycling is more fun. Honestly, it's, it's simpler. Um, cycling really is just magic when it, when it goes right. Um, uh, but there's something really, um, powerful about walking. It's very grounded, literally. Um, I do subscribe to this idea that, that our the movement of our bodies is connected to the movement of our minds, and that we, we the the writer Rebecca Solnit has this wonderful idea that we think uh, and move at three miles an hour, and so the two are very interconnected. And I and I find that when I walk, um, and I walk as a as a method of storytelling, um, it helps connect me to the places I'm passing through. It helps connect me to people I meet a lot more. It's a very humble way to arrive in a place. Um, you know, uh, cycling is too, but there's, there is something else like some other slight barrier between you and people. But if you arrive on foot with a backpack, it's, it's very, very simple. Um, and I think it, it encourages those that I meet to speak to me more freely. Um, and it just, you, you see everything when you walk, things you don't want to see, you know, you smell everything, things you don't want to smell, you, but you you just, um, everything is right there. And so you can't help but be part of it. And my ambition really is to, I think, as I said before, when I'm, when I'm doing these journeys, I want to have the experience myself so that I can try and understand it and, and then present it for an audience in a way that they can understand and feel it too. And, and they like me can learn something important from it. Um, so the more, you know, immersed I can be in that, the better. And I think walking does that better. You move, you move slower too. So you see, you see, a, a you see less, um, than if you're on a bicycle, you know, a month on a bicycle, you'll see more than a month walking, but in a month walking, you'll know that 150 miles of area much more intimately than you would um, on a bike. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, in terms of, because you, as you say, describe yourself as a storyteller, I, I always find that when you're walking and you are, as you say, more engaged in the local um, area, the local landscape, the local, it's, if I find it, it clears your head a lot more to that sort of thoughts of the story that you are telling in a sense it's a more sort of clear, whereas cycling, you are a bit more, not the word narrow, focused because you're sort of streaming along, you know, maybe a hundred miles a day, but walking, you're probably going at sort of 20, 20 miles, give or take a day. And so you have that sort of time to reflect. You do. And there's never any, there's no free miles when you're walking. Um, with cycling, if you're going up a hill or you're riding into a headwind or whatever else, you you know you got to work for it, especially if you're on a loaded touring bike. But when you get to the top of the hill, you just you cruise. Um, and you know if you're riding along a um, a flat uh, area and there's a t there's a, a tailwind or you know it's almost like you're not having to put in any effort. So you can your mind can, as you said, you can drift off. You can think about other things. You can just sort of you know, feel the, the breeze in your hair. Um, but, uh, with cycling, yeah, you don't get that year. If you, you walk up a hill, you walk down a hill, you know, you, you walk into the wind, you walk with the wind, but you're always, 
it's always your feet, so your back, so your legs that are doing the work, and you always kind of feel the pack slightly biting into your hips, or your shoulder, and um, kind of, uh, you know, um, I think a positive way to look at it is it always reminds you, it always keeps you in the moment, reminds you that you're alive, you're still moving, but um, it's, uh, yeah, it means you never fully disconnect from that moment, so you're always, you're always very present. Yeah, that's so very true. And as you said, you are out in Iraq at the moment and you are, what I think is so interesting about your story now and what you're sort of doing is you're showing so many different parts of Iraq that, you know, myself and probably a lot of our listeners um, don't know about. And you are opening up these sort of trails and these walkways for tourists in the future and for people and the locals there to sort of experience. Can you tell the audience sort of about some of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so the, the very short version of how that came to be is that um, in, in 2015, I did a journey around a different part of the Middle East. I walked from Jerusalem in a, a sort of lap or a loop of the Holy Lands area um, heading north up through the West Bank and then across into Jordan, south of length of Jordan, into the Sinai Peninsula and then back up through southern Israel and um, back to Palestine and um, Jerusalem. And I, I wrote a book about that. Uh, and to guide me on that walk, I used this, this series of modern-day hiking trails that were being developed in the region. And those hiking trails were um, didn't involve any creation of a trail uh, it was more a reimagining of what was already there of these old pilgrimage paths and trade routes and you know uh, bedouin tracks and so on um and so i i uh observed the work that had been done there over a number of years by the local teams and i i um, did a lot of research about the process of creating trails throughout that book um and then i uh i went to armenia and saw my friend tom allen who i been on expeditions with in the past before and he was doing a similar thing in Armenia with the Trans-Caucasian Trail which runs across Armenia and Georgia so I, I helped a little bit there and sort of developed my own um, knowledge a bit more and um, and I'd been interested in Iraq for a while I first came here in 2016 to the semi-autonomous Kurdish region in the north and this is where I live now in the city of Erbil which is it's part of Iraq but it's also distinct. It's got its own borders, its own government, its own military. Um, it's significantly safer and simpler. Um, you can get a visa on arrival here. You know, there's been a sort of nascent tourism industry here for a while. Um, it's very different from federal Iraq, from southern Iraq. Uh, but yeah, and I came here and, um, and I immediately, you know, I saw the mountains here and I saw the the layers of history and culture and faith and meaning that were in this landscape. Um, I thought of all these other trails that, that were being developed elsewhere in the region and around the world. And um, I'd always, I, I still consider myself first and foremost, a storyteller and a writer. Um, but I was really interested in the power of tourism and adventure tourism. Adventure tourism is the fastest growing sector of tourism worldwide. I think a lot of people are looking for, um, you know, more meaning to their travels, but also they want something with a little bit more bite to it. And you know, it's not always uh, what hiking trails kind of fall under the category of soft adventure. So, you know, it's not, you don't need any great skills. You don't need to be able to climb with ropes. You don't need to be able to, you know, 
kayak and whitewater rapids, you just need to be able to walk, but you, you're out there and you're, you're doing something different. So, um, so from, from 2016 onwards, I, I met a guy called Lawin Muhammad, who's a, um, he's, uh, a Kurd, uh, his ethnicity is Kurdish. He's from Northern Syria, but he lives in Erbil and he started taking me out to the mountains and we started to explore them together. And, um, and I, I had this idea then that it would be amazing to try and create Iraq and, and Kurdistan's first long distance walking trail and to base it on the, the model and some of the uh, success that has been seen in Jordan and, and other places. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, one day maybe people local and international would, would think of the mountains of Kurdistan as, as a place to come and hike in the same way that you think of the other great trails of the world. So that's, that's how I started. And I'd, I'd be happy to tell you more about the, the process that we've gone through too, if you like. Yeah. So how did it start? <clears throat> how what was the sort of process from sort of starting out? Because these are new trails that you're opening up. So from sort of day one, where does it sort of start and the sort of process? So the, the, the first thing that Loeen and I did was we, we just, so I started coming here in 2016. We, uh, my partner and I moved here in 2019, and that's when things picked up. Uh, an American organization called the Abraham Path Initiative um, began funding the project then, and so it could become a lot more um, professionalized and, and the strategy could become a bit clearer. But those first years, when I was coming back and forth, um, Lawin and I would just go to places in the mountains and ask people about the trails. Um, and it started in a town called Amadi which is way up in the um, northwest of the Kurdish region. It's very close to the Turkish border. Uh, so, you know, we're in the north of Iraq, so you've got Turkey above us, you've got um, uh, Iran to the east, you've got um, Syria to the west, and then Fedil Iraq and down to the desert and the, the Persian Gulf to the south. Um, and it's very mountainous. Uh, uh, Kurdistan region is almost entirely mountains. Um, some of which are pretty big, you know, out, out east um, by the Iranian border. The tallest mountain that's fully inside Iraq is Halgur, which is about 3,600 meters. So, you know, you're, it, not insignificant. Um, but anyway, so we, we went to this town called Amadi, which was an ancient capital of, of this um, region when, when everything was ruled in these, in these little fiefdoms. Um, and it's a, it's an incredible time. It's built on the top, uh, it's built on a sort of plateau on the top of a mountain and, and three sides of it are just sheer rock. So you can see it from great distance. And there used to be two ancient gates that went into the, um, city. Uh, and there's one of those still exists and it, it kind of, you know, it's, you can still see it. They call it the Mosul gate. Um, and it's, uh, this small path comes out and it winds down, down in these ancient steps, which sort of alcoves etched into the rock beside it. And then it just disappears off into the valley. And so Lawine and I were there and we were you know, looking at this and, um, and I just thought to ask someone while we were there, well, where, where does this go? You know, what historically, what was this? And he said, well, this is the old donkey track to Mosul. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to carry your spices or whatever you were selling, um, you'd go to or from here. And as a sort of protection device, it was the, you had to come up through this switchback 
staircase into the city. Um, I realized that this was, you know, this was one of the silk roads. This was one of those ancient trade routes. And um, and so Lawine and I walked the first 10, 15 kilometers of it that day, just down into the valley through these little foothills. And and if we'd kept going for another day and a half, we would have got to the city of Mosul, which, you know, listeners will probably know now for all the wrong reasons because of its more recent association with the, the occupation of ISIS. But um, it's a very ancient, very beautiful, very wonderful city. And um, so th- so we we took that experience and extrapolated that out and just started visiting places. And, you know, in order to create a trail, you've just got to walk a lot of trails. So we'd go to all of these different areas in the Kurdistan region and we'd ask people, um, where, where are their tracks? Where do they go? What was the purpose? Who used to walk them? Who still walks them? Um, some were still in use, some were falling out of use. Uh, often it was the older people in the village who knew them and it's this one goes to the next village. It goes up over this, pass or it goes through this gorge um and we'd hire someone um pay them some money to, to guide us for a day and, and we mapped all of that digitally over the course of a couple of years until at some point we'd walked um you know 1100 1200 kilometers of trail and we had this matrix of of gpx data all of this, all these digital tracks of our trails and, and then we looked at it and thought well what if you were to choose one line with a start point and a finish point that took you across this region from west to east, what would it be? Um, and so we, we picked that out based on the trails we'd walked um, and picked out that single line, started in a town called al Khosh, which is a, an Assyrian Christian town um, in the west. And the end point is the, the kind of base camp of Halgurd Mountain, the highest mountain in the region. And in between, there's uh, you know, 225 kilometers of trail, um, and it's we've chosen it so that it tells a story because I, I I believe that trail should be experienced like 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 an narrative, you know, except that you kind of physically walk it, um, you physically read it with your feet rather than um, any other way, and uh, and along the way you pass through these small villages, you pass through these small communities, um, you pass through the the Assyrian areas, the Yazidis, who are another faith here. There's Zoroastrians here. There's Sufi mystics. Um, there's a town with, um, you know, a, an old synagogue when there used to be a Jewish population in Iraq. Um, you go into the higher mountains and into these areas with where there are Persian leopards still in the hills. Um, you know, we but we we also the guides, the local guides that we've been working with and training. They, some of them are shepherds, um, and these trails are their trails, shepherds' trails. Some of them are Peshmerga, who are the Kurdish military, who also use these mountains as a as a source of defense in, in battles of the past. So we, we walk with them. So you ha- kind of have these different layers of experience of past and present, and then we try and imagine what it will look like in future. Um, we believe that, in general, this region is getting safer and hopefully continues to remain secure and so we think about what might happen and so there's along the trail there's 35 36 communities that we work with um and this trail really belongs to them and um, because they have to endorse it and um, support it and it's a wonderful privilege for me to be able to to walk here and ha- and to have got to know somewhere so far from my own home so well but ultimately if it's going to last and if it's going to work as a tourism um, product it's got to it's got to be a local team here who will 
who will um will champion it and maintain it and everything else and uh yeah so i mean i i really strongly believe that trails um change lives you know it's, it seems like it's very simple it's just going for a walk but creates a whole level of economic uh, economic opportunities for people in these villages it also builds a sense of civic pride um it creates an opportunity for environmental protection for protection of heritage and historical sites um and it's you know in a region that has had a history of ethnic and religious division i think it's a, a way that people can come and be together in a in a safe beautiful space and then for people like you and me you just like um you know beautiful interesting places it's great because we have a a sort of um, uh, heavily researched, safe way to be um, somewhere really interesting and somewhere new. So that's it's grown quite a lot from <laughs> from what I thought it would. It's it's the the reason I've moved here. Um, and my my partner's a photographer. She spent now also years on the trail, uh, photographing it too. And you know, it's um, Lawine is still one of my closest friends. We we're out in the mountains together almost every weekend, whether it's for the trail project or just for ourselves. And, um, yeah, it's completely changed the course of my life. You know, it's the, aside from the bike trip, which, um, which taught me about the world. This is the, the second most impactful experience I've had. It's, that's affected almost everything. It's just incredible. Um, as you say, opening up these routes, did you have any sort of issues or conflicts when starting out? I mean, how was it taken with the locals? I think for a, for a long time, um, I mean, here people are incredibly hospitable. It's, uh, most people around the world are hospitable in the Middle East. It, that's doubled and here it's tripled. You know, it's, it's such a intrinsic part of, um, people's personality. It's a very defining characteristic. And actually it can be, it's been really challenging for us because people are so hospitable that the idea that at any point in the future, someone would have to pay to stay in their home or that they would have to pay to hire them to walk with them for a day is total anathema. You know, it, it can seem to a lot of people in these areas that we're working that that, that would be um, abandoning your sense of duty to a stranger. Um, so, uh, I mean, to go back to your question, when we, when we started approaching these villages, the first couple of times you turn up and walk somewhere, you can tell people whatever you like, but it doesn't really mean anything because it's the first time they've ever seen you. Um, and you, know, you could say, we've got this idea for a trail and maybe some other people will come in future and we want to go from here to here, whatever. Um, and you know, people understand it intellectually, of course, but it's just, it's, it's so new and foreign and everything else. But the third, fourth, fifth, sixth time you turn up in a village, um, and you walk the same trail and you, and you kind of explain the project again and again. Then it starts to settle in. And people have been really receptive to the idea. Um, you know, aside from the, the, the biggest challenge is just getting people to accept money <laughs> for the work that they will do. Um, and, you know, that's kind of ongoing. But uh, and it's sort of amusing, but it's also it's why we spend a lot of our time just um, to trying to... to to explain that that's how this will have to work in future, um, but we've th there are challenges here too in this region. You know, I won't gloss over them. There, there are there are a lot of landmines in this area from various conflicts in the past, from the Iran Iraq War. Um, Saddam Hussein, when he was in power in in Iraq, 
had a number of campaigns against the Kurds in the north, so he mined a lot of the areas in the mountains. Um, some of them are unmarked, so you know local people know where they are, but it's not like there's a, a fence or a sign for every single one of these minefields. Um, so, as you can imagine, uh, the risk assessment for a trail development project is is pretty extensive when that's the case. Um, there's also uh, you know the, the Turkish military just across the border of an ongoing um, conflict against a, a militant group, and there's been airstrikes in certain parts of the the region, and all of this is kind of far from where we are and where we're we're having our project and having our walks. But it's certainly things that we have to be aware of um, very acutely. And I think in order for anyone to come and walk this trail in the future, they've got to feel. 100% secure. It kind of any question about a landmine or an airstrike or even like a wild animal, you know, you, you, that's just not going to fly for the vast majority of tourists. So we've somehow got to um, somehow got to manage those risks really carefully and really well um, to make sure that this is safe and open for everyone. So yeah, you know, direct conflicts for us, not so much. Um, we've had the usual sort of adventures you have when you go off into the wilderness for a few days and you know, have to cross swollen rivers or um, often what will happen or not often, but sometimes what will happen is we'll meet some someone who's a little bit elderly in a village and they're the last person who still knows the trail from you know village X to village Y. And so we think, brilliant, you know, this, this guy can take us and we'll finally connect up these places. And and he's always very enthusiastic and, and it is almost always he. Um, and yeah, we set off, you know, and, and uh, with whoever it is and they're normally 70, 80 years old. And quite quickly it becomes apparent that they're maybe not as fit as they thought they were 20, 30 years ago. And also they can't quite remember the trail as clearly as they thought they did. <laughs> and um a not insignificant number of times we've ended up like that, you know, clinging to the side of a mountain somewhere in a in a downpour, having to um, having to very quickly extract ourselves from it and realizing that we're probably never going to find that trail. Um, so we 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 do all of that so that hopefully in the future people who walk this will have a very pleasant managed experience. But our scouting is not always as successful. Amazing and. I suppose for people listening, when they're on this trail, and for you, you've been doing this over the last sort of few years. What's the sort of what? What's an amazing moment that you've sort of had along the way that sort of took you back? There's been um, there's been a, a number of them, but the one that I love the most, I think, is. Um, it was actually in the early days, 2017, early 2018. And we still hadn't really scouted much in the east, which is where the biggest mountains are. And um, we, uh, we'd we been in another area, kind of in the middle of the region, and decided at the last minute, you know, late at night, to drive out to the east so we could do some more scouting the next day and see some of it. And um, so our friend Miran drove... Lawine and I and another friend and you know kind of late at night winter it was really cold it was minus whatever um and uh and it got to the point where it was just so cold and so late that we we thought we have to find somewhere to stay and we'll just start this again tomorrow and we ran called a few friends and eventually there was a village on the way called Rezan and 
someone he knew knew someone there. So we arrived, you know, midnight or 1am to this guy's house. And he, he didn't ask any questions at all. He just swept us straight inside, had these little um, oil gas heaters going. Um, somehow his, you know, with about 30 minutes notice, his wife had prepared this huge spread of food. And um, we ate really well. We warmed up and then we he just passed out on the floor in his guest room. We woke up in the morning um, and his village was just the most picturesque place I can ever imagine. This little garden outside and these windows, I could see it as soon as I opened my eyes, you know, lift my head from the pillow. I could see um, just these beautiful mountains, slightly dusted in snow, just uh, just beyond his little um, garden, his little fruit trees. And um, we had some breakfast and he said, well, let's go. Let's go walking there. And he was this old Peshmerga guy, this old military guy, very peaceful, very zen, um, had the most incredible, prodigious mustache. <laughs> and um, and he just took us out and we spent the day just walking around in those mountains on these beautiful old trails that were all, you know, just really hundreds of years of human activity on them and then we came back to his house and uh and spent another night there and um that guy Ahmed has now become one of the major guides he's one of our you know close friends he's one of the major people involved in the trail um he's he's we've learned so much about this project and the country and life from him um and it all just came by in that chance encounter and whenever I think of the moments that I hope I'll always remember um waking up that morning in his home after that bitterly cold night and just going off this beautiful walk. That's one of them. Wow. Uh, God, what a story. I mean, and I suppose your, your hope is for the future that this becomes a sort of go-to destination for people to go and experience Iraq and the best of Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's always, you know, it's not going to be for everyone. Um, some people will, uh, you know, very understandably feel it's just not quite for them. Um, with the risk level is too high or whatever. Um, but for other people, I think they might be up for it. And as long as we can do our job well and professionally and, and prove, uh, beyond reasonable doubt that it's safe, um, and enjoyable and that you'll learn a lot. Yeah. I hope that people will, will come and, it's for everyone, it's for, for local people, it's for international people, and I hope it'll take a few years, but at some point people will talk about this as one of the, the great, exciting new trails of the world. Well, that, that would be absolutely amazing. It's been absolutely brilliant um, sort of listening to your stories, and as I say, we could probably delve into about three more stories from your travels and adventures over the past year, but or past decade. But there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week, uh, with the first being, on your trips and adventures, what's the one gadget that you always take with you? Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. Um, I, I, there's a, a new gadget that I've got recently, which was a really beautiful, small pair of field binoculars um, that my partner bought for me, a really, really nice pair, you know, kind of like a... Um, pair and they are just i mean it, it's it's been so much fun having those around 
Um, and, uh, you know, partly purposeful, I can sort of scout trails and look at things in the distance, but also just to enjoy bird life and everything else. So these days I always take those absolutely everywhere. Prior to that, rather boringly, I always just said that, you know, walking adventures, um, I always just made sure that my boots and my backpack were, uh, right. You know, you can kind of get away with, with lower quality or less successful versions of everything else. But, um, I will spend whatever money it takes and a good pair of boots <laughs> to make sure I'm happy. <laughs> but yeah, boots and binoculars, I suppose, is probably where I'm at these days. It's very, I'm, I'm entering middle age faster than I realize maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's so true. Going on these sort of trips with bad boots or bad walking shoes, it just makes the whole experience just something else. Yeah, miserable. Uh, what about your favorite adventure or travel book? My favorite adventure or travel book, I said, is a, a really good one. Um, I find it probably, I mean, very, uh, not to go into question, I find it very hard to um, choose one. I, I like a lot, but I'll tell you, I um, a book that I have that had a big impact on me was a book called The Marsh Arabs by Wilfred Thesiger. And um, I've been rereading it a lot. I read it you know, at university. Um, Wilfred Thesiger was a, a great uh, traveler in the Middle East, spent years with the Bedouin in, in the deserts and the Arabian Peninsula and, and also spent years in the marshes of southern Iraq. And I was lucky enough to go there in recent years. And I've, I've actually just written a, a magazine story about... Um, finding one of his boatmen, his kind of favorite companion in the marshes, a guy called Amara bin Thakub, um, who for seven years in the 1950s traveled with Thessager and we tracked him down to Baghdad where he lives these days and he's 91 years old. Um, and I, I wrote, you know, the story of his life um, and his memories of Thessager and also his own memories of his childhood and that time in Southern Iraq. So I think um, the Marsh Arabs is a, wonderfully written book it's sort of problematic in the ways that a lot of um books of that era are it's Thessiger was a very unusual uh man and he he writes with this um you know very sort of atavistic uh, orientalist um approach to his writing but he also on the flip side of that is that he really did immerse himself in um, these places and he really did seem like he was trying to be a part of that lifestyle he never really felt like he belonged in um, in Eton or Oxford and you know this kind of high society life that he had in, in England um, so there's something really vulnerable about his writing as well um, and so the Marsh Arabs <laughs> is the short answer <laughs> oh, amazing I might have to uh, check that one out um why are these adventures important to you? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, adventures have always been important to me for my own. There's two two levels to it, but uh, one is just my own health and happiness, my own mental and physical health and happiness. Um, I feel much better about myself and the world when I'm outdoors and when I'm out meeting people. Uh so I, I do it to keep myself sane, but I think mostly they're important to me because these days the, the I really believe in 
the purpose of what I'm doing. So creating a trail or, um, or some of the other shorter journeys and stories I've been doing, I, I, I kind of would really, yeah, I, I would put everything I have behind the fact that they, uh, will make a difference. And so that kind of gives me a sense of purpose too. It makes me feel like I'm using my time wisely. Um, and the, the older I get and the more I do this, the more I feel a responsibility to, to use my time wisely. Nice. What about your favorite quote? My favorite quote. Um, uh, that is a good one. Uh, I have actually I have one pinned above my desk at the minute, which is um, it's uh, it's not really a. Uh, I've got two. They're they're both about writing. Uh, one is by the, the crime writer Elmore Leonard, who said, "If it if it sounds like writing, rewrite it." And I quite often look at that when I'm <laughs> when I think something I've written is great. Um, but there's a I probably can't remember it uh, exactly, but I I was recently reading. Um, a book, a, uh, one of John Steinbeck's books, um, when he went to Russia with the photographer Robert Kappa, and um, they, you know, it was, it was very unusual for uh, for someone like him to be allowed in and light access to travel around um, the country, and, and this is in the in kind of era of Cold War. Um, and somewhere near the start of the book, he says something like, "This is our plan," and um, this is what we were going to try and do. And if it worked, it would make a good story. And if it didn't work, then, you know, whatever happened because of that would also make a good story. And I've, I've um, you know, butchered his wonderful prose for that, but that was, that's basically the essence of the quote. And um, I recently did an expedition myself where it felt where I took a lot of inspiration from that. Uh, you know, you, you make a plan. Um, if it goes well, you get what you want. If it doesn't go well, well, and if you just go with it enough um, and the idea is good enough, then, whatever happens as a result will also work out well. Yeah, I think there's quite a few sort of different takes on that. Um, people listening are always keen to travel and go on these sort of expeditions like yourself. What's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to get started? Um, I guess there's, there's two ways to look at it. One is that uh, for most people, I imagine, who will be listening to this, we're um, we, we're all pretty fortunate, you know, we, we have, um, if you're listening to this, you probably have, uh, a certain quality of life, a certain set of opportunities. It might be greater or lesser depending on the individual, but, um, you might, you're probably able to be able to consider this. So, um, you can just go off and, and do something. You can, do something simple. I mean, there's no point in waiting around forever for the, the dream trip um, because it it rarely happens. You will always be more money to save or um, more research to do or uh, waiting for someone else to be ready to join you or waiting for something. Um, so I'm a big fan of just going, if it, especially if it's a first adventure. Um, but I'm also a fan of starting relatively smaller, and more humble. Before I did my big bicycle trip, I cycled around the UK with a couple of friends when I was 17 um, or 16 even um and uh, it was very simple very haphazard but uh, it was what we could do and it was there and it was it was wonderful um but the second thing i would say is that as i've got older and i've done more of this 
the only the thing that has kept me motivated and interested is finding my purpose. And, you know, hopefully I've articulated over the last hour. So what um, I feel like that is for me. But I think if if you find the purpose for your travels, for your ventures, then um, it'll never feel, uh, you know, impossibly challenging or uh, difficult to overcome because that will always drive you forward. It, it'll be this motivating factor that will that will be with you at all times so you know think about what it is that you do think about what you're good at what you're interested in um and uh you know what you can offer um and uh if you find that then yeah it's a it's a wonderful wonderful key to unlock everything else oh well that's really well said um and people listening you know how can they follow you and follow your trips and what you're doing in iraq um, I am on social media, uh, with my name at Leo McCarran on Instagram and Twitter primarily. Um, and my website is leomccarran.com, which has got a, um, mailing list. Uh, yeah. And everything I write, my magazine stories, my books, my TV stuff, I, I posted all, um, you know, uh, self-congratulatory, um, posts on uh, social media no hopefully not but um yeah i will share everything on there so uh, instagram is probably the most active of all of those amazing well leon thank you so much for coming on today and telling your story thank you it's been a pleasure i really enjoyed it thanks for inviting me thank you for listening you can watch it on youtube now and don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast if you're listening on apple I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures.